morning is from the book of Colossians, uh, and we're going to be reading from Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 24. If you'd like to turn there, it's also printed for you in the bulletin. Colossians 1, verse 24. This is God's Word. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have, been seen, who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. And pray for us. Father, thank you for giving us your word. We pray that you would open it to us now uh, and give us understanding from it and shape our lives by it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Every year our denomination has uh, what's called our General Assembly. Uh, And it's a gathering of teaching elders and ruling elders from our various churches throughout the United States. A couple of years ago, when I was the assistant pastor at Mount Calvary, uh, I was headed to that along with the senior pastor and two of our elders. And EC was actually one of the ones who went with us uh, that day. And as we, we were flying out of Charlotte, and as we were in the Charlotte airport, we prepared to check in. We went through the check-in process, and we were told that one or more of your passengers may not have seats on this flight. Oh, oh good. Uh, that's always fun when that happens. Well, it turned out uh, that EC and I didn't have seats on this flight. And so we waved goodbye to, to Richard and Frank and said, have fun in Dallas. I guess we'll be here a while. Uh, the airline put us on standby for the, the 2.30 flight. And they said, if you don't get on that one, then for sure you're going to get on the 6.30 flight. Um, Now, if you had a a suffering scale of like from 1 to 100, I know being stranded in the Charlotte airport is down near 2 or 3 or maybe negative 2 or 3. It's just not that big a deal. But if you've been in that situation before, you know how aggravating those kind of days can be. And so we stood and we started talking to the airline representative and he told us, Uh, that in addition to getting us on a later flight, what he was also going to do for us was he would either uh, refund the price of our ticket uh, or give us uh, free airfare to anywhere in the continental United States, free flight somewhere else. And I was standing there and I was thinking about that and I thought, well, let's see, the church paid for my ticket and um, if I take the money, then i got to give this back to the church, but if I just take the ticket, hmm, 
So I had this ethical dilemma going on in my mind, and EC immediately says, just make, my, just make the check out to my church. And I kind of looked at him and looked at the guy and said, just make mine out to the church. That's, that's fine. That's what we should do. And, and, and we talked to this guy for a while, and, and come to find out, his dad, he said, he said EC reminded him a lot of his uh, father, actually, uh, and that his dad was very involved in his church when he was growing up. And it kind of sounded like this guy wasn't at this time. And we had a very pleasant conversation uh, with Jeff. What started out very tense uh, wound up to be a very, a very nice conversation with this, with this man. Now, uh, I don't know that God did anything with that. Uh, we didn't share the gospel with him or anything like that. Uh, but I do know that, that he was reminded of his father, who was a regular church attender at least. Uh, I do know that he got to see us handle uh, a tense situation, at least in a fairly Christ-like uh, manner. We weren't mad at him or arguing with him or anything like that. Uh, and, you know, you, you kind of had to say to yourself at the end of that, well, I really would have rather been on that flight, uh, but if God uses this little bit of suffering uh, to help this person out, to point him to himself, then I think that's reason to rejoice. That that's a good thing that God can use suffering uh, for the good of the kingdom. Now, that, that's kind of a silly example and a long example. Um, a more uh, poignant example, perhaps, some of you knew Doug Epps uh, at Mount Calvary who passed away this past week. And at the funeral, uh, one of the things Richard said was that Doug had said that if anybody can come to know Christ through my suffering, then it's been worth it. He suffered with cancer for eight and a half years, something like that. If anybody comes to know Christ as a result of this, then it's been worth it. Uh, the Apostle Paul says here, I rejoice in my sufferings for you. Uh, Paul saw that suffering was a necessary part of faithful Christian ministry. Just faithful ministry of the gospel. And so what I want to look at in this text is just the way that this text as a whole shows us what faithful ministry is marked by. Now, you might be saying at this point, well, Justin, you're the only preacher here. Uh, why don't you save the sermon for when you're at General Assembly? Or, or Well, they're not going to ask me to preach there, so I've got to use it now. Um, no, but, but because all of us are called, whether you're in full-time ministry or not, you're called to minister to one another. Colossians chapter 3, later on in the book, Paul's going to tell the Colossians to teach and admonish one another. So it's not just this, uh, but it's also you being involved in each other's lives and ministering the word to one another. So what, what does faithful ministry look like? Uh, four things in the text. Faithful ministry is marked by a concern to see others grow in grace. It's marked by diligence in carrying out the duties of your calling. It's marked by dependence on Christ. And then finally, joy in the midst of suffering. And I'll say all those again if you're taking notes. A concern to see others grow in grace. Uh, look, look back at verse 28. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And then in chapter 2, verse 2, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, 
which is Christ. Uh, Paul wants to see the Colossians grow up in their faith. Uh, He wants to see them grow in their knowledge of God. He wants to see them knit together as a congregation. Uh, In short, he just wants to see them grow in grace. He wants to see them make progress in the Christian life. Uh, And that's what any minister of the gospel who's worth his salt would want to see in the life of the members of his congregation. To see them grow and make progress in your knowledge of God. In your love for the Lord Jesus Christ. uh, In your love for each other. In your understanding of the gospel. And I'd hope that you would want that for yourself uh, as well. Now, uh, let me make just a few applications here. In order for uh, your pastor, for any pastor, to to help you to grow in your relationship with the Lord, uh, he's got to be involved in your lives in some way. Uh, In Acts chapter 20, Paul speaks about uh, teaching publicly and then also from house to house. uh, That he he spent time uh, with people instructing them in the word of God. Uh, and the truth of the matter is, is the better that, that a minister knows you, the better the minister knows his flock, the better he's able to actually apply the Word of God to you in your specific life situations. And the better he's able to apply the Word of God to you even as he's preaching because he knows better what's going on in your life and is able to, to tailor the sermon to fit that. But that means that sometimes you get asked hard questions. Uh, how are you doing? How are you doing spiritually? How's your prayer life? Uh, how's your marriage? What sin are you struggling with? Where do you need to grow in grace? Uh, a second application here is that as a church grows, uh, one pastor alone can't do all that. And the Bible's actually made provision for that. And that not only do we have teaching elders, we have ruling elders uh, who govern the church but also are called to be shepherds of the flock as well, and they come alongside uh, the pastor and do that shepherding house to house ministry. Uh, as we grow, we're going to need that. In fact, to be a particular church, we've got to have uh, an elder besides me. Uh, we're going to have to have ruling elders. And so some of you have to start thinking about maybe that's something the Lord's calling me to. Do I want to be an elder at Grace Presbyterian Church assisting in shepherding the flock and praying for them? Um, a third application here, you, you've got to learn to, as a member of a congregation, one of the things you have to do is to, to learn to trust uh, your pastoral staff, learn to trust your elders. Um, when I come to you or when we have elders, one of them come to you uh, and, and starts asking these hard questions, how are you doing, what can I pray for, what are you struggling with, you've got to be able to say something other than, Fine, I'm fine. Nothing, you don't need to pray for anything. We're good, everything's good. Um, You're not going to be cared for very well if that's the only answer you give. And then a fourth point of application here would simply be, are you ministering to each other? But it's not just pastors and elders who are doing this. There's also this one anothering that ought to be going on uh, in our lives. Uh, You know, are, are we getting beyond the conversation about the stock market and the football and, and you know what the weather and children and actually asking people questions about what's going on with you spiritually. Um, it's easy just to kind of come and show up and say, what do I get out of this? And then sort of leave and be dispersed for the week. 
Uh, but are you actually connecting with other members of the body and asking them those questions and being asked those questions? Uh, so the, the, the first mark of faithful ministry here is simply a concern to see others grow in grace. A second mark of faithful ministry here is diligence in carrying out the duties of your calling. Look at verse 25. Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God which was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. Verse 29. To this end I labor, striving according to his working which works in me mightily. And then chapter 2 verse 1. I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you. A faithful minister is someone who is called to work hard uh, at the work God has called him to and not uh, get distracted by secondary matters. Now, um, as application here, what exactly uh, does hard work on the part of your pastor or pastors if you're in another church what does that look like? Some of you may be saying, well, I don't know, I've never seen it. Um, you guys just work one day a week anyway. So I don't know what hard work, what, 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 what do you do anyway? What's a pastor supposed to be doing? Uh, verse 29, Paul says, Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man. Part of what uh, faithful ministry, what a pastor specifically is called to, is simply the ministry of the word. Uh, and to minister the Word, you've got to spend time studying the Word and praying over the Word. Uh, secondly, faithful ministry, what's a pastor doing? Well, he prays. Paul says, I want you to know what great struggle I have for you. And most commentaries think, think that's referring to his labor in prayer. Uh, that it's not just the Word, that it's minister of the Word and prayer. Um, uh, and that's simply an acknowledgement that, you know, I'm not magical. Uh, it's not like I have all this great insight, but the Holy Spirit's got to come down on, on this church and in our lives if we're actually going to be changed by the Word and not simply be hardened to it. And then thirdly, a faithful minister, the third thing a faithful minister does is to listen uh, to his people. Now, Paul listened to what he was hearing about the Colossians, and then he crafted this letter to fit their specific situation. So you got to listen. So three things I think that really sum up what a minister does, what a minister's work is. Word, prayer, listen. Word, prayer, listen. Word, prayer, listen. Over and over again. I think that really is the gist of it. Uh, now, here's the problem. I think it's easy, uh, especially as a church grows, for the minister and the elders to simply kind of become the CEO and the board of directors of this big machine that we've got running. Uh, and more and more you get time pulled away from word, listening, prayer. Uh, so that a lot of other things begin to crowd in what the primary responsibility of pastors is supposed to be. And so I think as, as we grow and as we build grace, we've got to take steps back from time to time and go, okay, are we really giving our pastor the time to do what he's supposed to be doing. We really give our elders the freedom to do what we expect them to be doing. Are we heaping additional burdens on them that are distracting them from the main thing? Uh, secondly here, it's not just the pastor and the elder's job to read the word and to pray and to listen. 
Um, that's part of your job too. That's part of your calling simply as being a believer. You know, your, your first instinct when somebody comes to you with a difficulty, with a spiritual question, shouldn't be, well, let me get, let me get Justin on the phone. I'm sure he can answer that question for you. No, that's fine. But your first instinct ought to be, all right, God's put me in this situation um, for some reason. So how am I then going to minister to this person whom God has placed in my path? But, you know, taking both sides of this, but you're not actually called to be a vocational minister uh, in the way that I am, in the way that other ministers of the Word are. You're called to be accountants and to run businesses, uh, to, to, to fold laundry, to be moms, to be dads, to be all these other things. Uh, and so you're not going to devote the time and the energy and the resources to ministry that somebody who's called to it vocationally might. Um, you're called to be faithful in the station of life that God has placed you in. And I think sometimes we can get caught up and not see how spiritual that actually is. Like we're like, well, I've got to be sharing the gospel with somebody or I'm not actually doing spiritual work. No, whatever you're doing is spiritual. And it's what God's called you to do. Right? And so you need to do that well and be faithful in your calling and see that as your labor in the Lord. Uh, there's a movie that was out several years ago. It's a, it's a little bit salty, but I think it's helpful to see... Uh, this point. It's a movie called The, the, the Great Kahuna, uh, and it's got Kevin Spacey and Danny DeVito. Kevin Spacey and Danny DeVito are these salesmen uh, at a convention, and neither of them are believers, but they've got a new partner who is a believer. Uh, and th these guys are getting to know each other, and they're working the convention and trying to make contacts. Uh, but their new partner, who's a believer, is more concerned with talking to people about Jesus than he is with actually doing his job and making the sales that he needs to make. Now, there's one point in the movie where they send him out, like, all right, this is your chance to close the deal. We're going to send you out to meet this guy, and we want you to close the deal, and then we'll evaluate how everything went. And so he goes out to do this, and he comes back later, and they say, well, how did it go? And he said, well, it went great. I got to have this big conversation with him about Jesus. And they kind of look at him like, and the business deal? And he says, well, we never got around to that. And Danny DeVito looks at him at this point and he, said, and he looks at him at this point and he says, you're disingenuous. Uh, you're, you're dishonest. You're stealing even. Because that's not what you were sent out there to do. That's not what you're getting paid to do right now. You're getting paid uh, to make this business deal. And the interesting thing is that while he's out there not doing his job really, the two of them who aren't believers by any stretch of the imagination are back in the hotel room and one of them is going through a really hard time in life and they get into this big conversation about God uh, with no real guidance to it. They're just sort of fishing around having this conversation about God. But because they know each other so well, they're able to to be open and honest about what they really think about the subject. And now the person who's actually a believer and could actually shed some light on the subject, uh, if he had gotten to know them better, they're not interested in him at all anymore, simply because he didn't do his job well. Um, so all that to say is, yes, it's not just the preacher who's called to 
minister and pray and to listen. You're called to do that as well. But you have to be mindful of the fact that he's also called you to be faithful workers. Part of being a Christian, a faithful Christian, is being a faithful worker, faithful in your calling. Uh, Third mark of faithful ministry here, dependence on Christ. Uh, Verse 29. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. You do have to work hard at ministry. You do have to work hard at loving your neighbors and loving your enemies, uh, loving your family sometime, and being kind and talking and listening. But all of it's got to be done in dependence on Christ. Um, and what that means is you've got to pray a lot as you go into ministry. Uh, lack of prayer, I think, is really just unbelief. Uh, it's me saying, nah, I can do this. If this is going to happen, I've got to get it done. And prayer is where we kind of let go of our supposed control of the world and rely simply on God. So you have to work hard, but there's got to be prayer along with that. Uh, and then lastly here, last mark of faithful ministry is rejoicing uh, even in suffering. Now look at verse, let's see, look at verse 5, chapter 2. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Well, of course, Paul, you're rejoicing about that. Who wouldn't? But then look look at verse 29, back up. Um, Not verse 29, verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is the church. Paul's glad that he's able to fill up in his flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, the church. Now what does that mean? Um, it's very clear that, that Christ's afflictions, that Christ's sufferings aren't somehow insufficient to cover uh, our sin, to pay the price for our sin. We can't add anything to what Christ has done. As if someone was was close to the kingdom of heaven that, that Jesus almost paid enough for them to get in and now i got to go throw in a dollar fifty worth of suffering to kind of get them over the top. Yeah, add my little bit to what Jesus had done. But I think what Paul is saying rather uh, is that for the gospel to spread, suffering has to happen because sinful men and women are also always going to resist the gospel to some degree. There's always going to be resistance. There's always going to be persecution that comes to those who are bringing the gospel message. And as that happens, Jesus doesn't come back and suffer more because of that. Uh, Rather, as that happens, we, his people, suffer. And we enter into, in a small degree, the suffering that Christ went through for us as we suffer for his name and for the sake of the gospel. And sometimes it's as we suffer for the gospel and as those who don't believe see the way in which we undergo that suffering, that itself is very powerful and is part of what God uses at times to draw people to himself. And so Paul says, uh, as he suffers for the church, he rejoices in that. And he's glad to do that. Now, again, you kind of go, well, how does he, he do that? 
All right, teach me how to do that. I don't do that very well. Well, a couple of things here. One, um, Paul's able to do this because he's very convinced of his calling. That this really is what he's supposed to be about, and suffering really is a part of it. You know, think about it. If you're in the military uh, and you've got a hill that you've got to take, if you're not convinced that you're called to be there, uh, you're going to run off and not take that hill. You're like, forget this. Somebody else can go suffer here. But if you're like, you know what, this is what I'm called to do, then you're able to undergo whatever suffering may come as you do what you're called to do. Or uh, think about you know, summer practice, late fall practice in football. Uh, if you're not convinced that you're called to be a football player, and this is where you're supposed to be, you know, the first time you're out there in pads running wind sprints and throwing up, you're going to say, never mind, somebody else can do this. But if you're convinced, no, I'm, I'm supposed to be here, then you're able to press on. Uh, if you're called in the ministry and you can't see how God's going to provide and work everything out, you press on because you're convinced of your calling. Uh, I think that's true uh, in, in much of anything. Uh, the way you're going to move forward, if you're going to move forward in a difficult situation, you've got to be convinced that God has called you to be where you are and to stand there and advance uh, and rejoice even in what God is doing. And the second thing that enables Paul to do this is that he simply knows Christ. And he's growing in his knowledge of Christ. He knows the riches of God's glory. He knows that the gospel, man, this stuff's actually being clearly revealed to the nations now. That all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, they're in Christ. And he wants the Colossians to know this and understand this. He wants other people to know this and understand this. To find this hope of glory. To find this hope for salvation in a fallen world. And so he presses forward. And if he has to suffer for them to know Christ, well, that's okay. That's okay. He knows uh, that the most important thing is for them to know Christ. And so he's willing to suffer for them. And he knows that as he suffers... He's going to get to know Christ better himself. And so he presses forward and he rejoices. I don't know if y'all remember the first week we did the first question of the Shorter Catechism. And that question was, what is man's chief end? And the answer was, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Now, I don't know about you, but I can find myself a lot of times, I think, living as if, um, my chief end is to enjoy myself um, or to glorify myself and to enjoy life forever. Justin's chief end is to, to glorify myself and enjoy life forever. Maybe you get caught up in that sometimes too. Um, giving lip service to Christianity, trying to live, do what you're supposed to do, gut it out and live a moral life and show up and sing praises week after week after week. But underneath all of that, there's this lurking desire for your own glory and your own comfort and your own well-being uh, lurking there. The chief end of your life isn't to know God and to glorify Him and enjoy Him. It's to enjoy life. You know what? If that's true, then I'm afraid for all of us that that's true for, then where we're going to wind up in is, is being pretty bitter one day. Uh, because every one of us, at some point in our life, the rug gets yanked out from under you to one degree or another. 
And our beautiful, wonderful life that we enjoy so much is going to crash for all of us. It's, it, it just will at some point. Uh, and if that happens to you, when that happens to you, if in the midst of that you begin to grasp, now wait a minute, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him. If you begin to grasp that, you'll be transformed in the midst of your suffering into a very beautiful person. But if you don't grasp that, and you continue to say, man's chief end, my chief end is to glorify myself and to enjoy life, and I'm not enjoying it, and I don't know why God isn't letting me enjoy it. Instead of being transformed into a beautiful person, you'll be transformed, you'll become a very bitter and miserable person. Paul rejoices in his suffering because he knows his calling and because he knows Jesus. Uh, He knows his suffering is actually causing him to know Jesus better. And he's hopeful that his suffering is going to cause others to know Jesus better as well. And so he can rejoice in it. Let me close with this story uh, from, from the minister Charles Spurgeon. He says this, Some years ago, I was the subject of fearful depression of spirit. Spurgeon struggled with depression off and on much of his life. He was going through a very rough time with it. I was also unwell, and my heart sank within me. Out of the depths, I was forced to cry unto the Lord. Just before I went away to Minton for rest, I suffered greatly in body, but far more in soul, for my spirit was overwhelmed. Under this pressure, I preached a sermon from the words, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I was as much qualified to preach from that text as I ever expected to be. Indeed, I hope that few of my brethren could have entered so deeply into those heartbreaking words. I felt to the full of my measure the horror of a soul forsaken of God. Now that was not a desirable experience. Uh, I tremble at the very idea of passing again through that eclipse of soul. This is probably one of the greatest preachers ever saying this. Uh, But that night after the service, there came into my vestry, into my office, a man who was as nearly as insane as he could be outside of an asylum. His eyes seemed ready to start from his head, and he said that he should have utterly despaired if he had not heard that discourse which had made him feel that there was one man alive who understood his feelings and could describe his experience. Uh, Five years later. Now hear the sequel. Last night, when of all the times of the year, strange to say, I was preaching from the words, The Almighty hath vexed my soul. After the service, in walked this self-same brother who had called on me five years before. This time he looked as different as noonday from midnight or as alive from dead. I said to him, I am glad to see you, for I have often thought about you and wondered whether you were brought into perfect peace. To my inquiries, this brother replied, Yes, you said five years ago that I was a hopeful patient. And I'm sure you'll be glad to know that I have walked in the sunlight from that day till now. Everything has changed and altered with me. Dear friends, as soon as I saw my poor despairing patient the first time, I blessed God that my fearful experiences had prepared me to sympathize with him. 
But last night, when I saw him perfectly restored, my heart overflowed with gratitude. I would go into the deeps a hundred times to cheer a downcast spirit. It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I might know how to speak a word in season to one that is weary. Uh, Someone who is able to rejoice in his suffering because he sees what God is working through it. It's part of faithful ministry. Uh, A concern that others would grow in grace, faithfulness to God where he's put you uh, today in your calling, dependence on Christ, and a willingness to suffer so that others might know uh, the joy and the comfort and the hope of the gospel. We pray for us. <clears throat> Father, this is one of those things that it's a lot easier to talk about than it is to experience uh, and to live out. And so we pray for help in all of this, that we would actually be concerned for others besides ourselves. Um, Father, that we would be faithful in our callings, that we would really believe that, that we need to pray because we're dependent on you and um, that suffering is part of what you call us to Uh, help us to see the good that you are working uh, through suffering and God maybe some of us are there right now uh, that we're in this place that Spurgeon talks about where we feel like that you have forsaken us and Father I pray that you would meet us there that you would not leave us but that you would draw near to us uh, that you would remind us Uh, of your love, and that you would comfort us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.